Welcome to Spotlight On, a new series produced by Excel, where we examine the technology shaping our world through conversations with the people building it. Welcome to Spotlight On. I'm Philippe Botteri, your host, and I'm here today with Victor Riparbelli, the founder and CEO of uh, Synthesia. Welcome, Victor. Thank you for having me, Philippe. Excited to be here. Well, it's super exciting to be uh, to be with you uh, today, Victor. Just to give some context to our listeners, Synthesia is a leading AI text-to-video platform for the, the enterprise. It's been incredible to watch all the, the progress that uh, you, know, you guys have made and how you've really managed to push the boundaries of uh, what's possible using generative AI in the field of uh, video and how that is uh, radically changing the field of enterprise uh, communication. But just, Victor, to get uh, started, tell us uh, a bit more about the, the founding story of Synthesia and uh, kind of how you went from you know, skate, skateboarding <laughs> and listening to punk rock music in Copenhagen to start one of the leading Gen AI company of um, you know, your generation. I think my story, uh, my path while starting Synthesia really started in my, my early kind of childhood. I had a deep fascination and curiosity about computers and technology from a very early age. More than a tinkerer as a, than as a developer, I loved playing games. I ran a huge World of Warcraft guild when I was not, not, uh, not that old. I just used to have a voice filter to make my, my voice sound deeper, um, <laughs> which, was, uh, which, which nice. was kind of fun. Um, and so I began building like e-commerce stores, websites for local businesses uh, in Copenhagen, where I grew up. It was an interesting point in time. This is almost 15 years ago, right? But there's, there's a time, point in time where everybody wanted to have a website and everybody wanted to have an e-commerce store. Everyone thought that it would cost you 30, 40, 50K euros uh, to make a web shop, right? Because that's what all the agencies were quoting them. And I remember sitting at home and I was like, I can use Shopify or Squarespace, something like that, right? And I can actually put up a pretty decent web shop in two days. And so that's exactly what I did. I went out and said, hey, if you pay me 3,000 euros, I'll put up a web shop for you. Um, and so that's kind of how I started uh, my, my path into turning my, my interest in technology into a career. So I did that. Then it turned out that when people had these web stores, right, they also wanted to market them. They wanted them to grow. That led me into like online marketing, running AdWords, Facebook ads, a lot of these kind of very practical things around how you run an online business. Um, and I figured out that I loved it and thought it was, it was really interesting. Um, I learned about you know, startups, which was a different category of working with, with technology. Um, and moved into the Danish startup ecosystem where I held a bunch of roles, mostly kind of around product and growth, mm. um, using my, my, I think, sort of light technical jobs, but combining that with an understanding of both the commercial side of like building a product and selling that to people. Mm. Um, and after having done that for four or four, five years, something like that, I, I knew I wanted to, to make my own company. I knew I loved to build products, but I'd also learned during that time that I wasn't super passionate about building bookkeeping software and like business process tools. Um, in my private life, I've always been a huge sci-fi nerd. I love the, the weird, wonderful, strange, like frontiers of technology. And I wanted to build something with that. So I decided to move to London because as great of a city as Copenhagen is, it's not really the place to build frontier technology. Um, and to make a very long story very short, I spent 12 months in London working for myself, along with a, a professor in machine learning. We were doing some consultancy work for the UK government, for some big companies mostly centered around VR and AR. This is right around the time when Oculus Rift came out. But I really spent that year on just getting super deep into 
um, mm -hmm. into the technology underpinning a lot of this. A lot of that was, was very much around AI. And I met my today co-founder, Professor Matthias Niesner. He had done some of the similar research in the space of, of AI video generation when he was at Stanford. And when I saw his research paper for the first time, I just felt like I saw magic. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's rare you get those moments uh, in life. I think a lot of people had that recently with something like ChatGPT, which when you try it the first time, you're just mind blown that this is even possible, right? Mm -hmm. And I had that moment, I saw the technology, I was just like, this is gonna change everything we know about media production. There was an idea that was captivating and interesting enough for me that I felt like I wanted to spend some years of my life exploring it. Um, and that's actually how we initially kind of built the thesis. Then it was about getting a team together. It was very hard, um, but we managed to do it. We managed to raise the first round of funding from our Cuban. So t tell us a bit more about that, because that, that was quite an extraordinary, extraordinary story. Like yeah. how do you manage yeah. to get that first funding? <laughs> uh, it was a lot of hard work and, and some yeah. luck. Yeah. So this is back in, I mean, AI had sort of a moment also in, in 2017, 18, right? There was a lot of VC money going into the space. Um, but most VCs like to invest in like PhDs as the mm. CEOs, right? The people who are like the deep technical experts was like gonna drive forward this field. Mm. Um, at this point in time, I was 25 years old and I had a decent track record, but I didn't have, I didn't have like Google on my CV. I wasn't like an AI PhD, right? So I think to a lot of people, um, they were a bit like, why would you start this company? What makes you qualify to that? And, and maybe there wasn't that much that made me qualify to do it, to be completely honest. Um, but we kind of persevered through that um, and managed to first convince Professor Matthias Niesner and Professor Ludus Agapito, who like the two technical parts of the founding team, and also my co-founder, Stefan, today, uh, to join me. And um, I think once we had the professors on board, we were like, okay, now we have the technical folks the VCs will love it, right? Uh, everybody's talking about AI and we have a great big vision for how we can build a fantastic company. And I think it was just one of those things where at the time it sounded completely crazy that you could use AI to generate video content. I don't think people thought it was a great founding team because we were two 25 year olds with, I mean, Stefan came, he, Stefan had been three years in Africa working in private equity, running like sand mines and chicken farms before starting Synthesia. So we were kind of like an odd couple in that, in that regard. Um, so we went around to all the VCs in Europe. I think we got turned down by almost like 100 VCs until Stefan one day, uh, out of just pure hustle, sent a cold email to Mark Cuban. He found his email in a Sony hack that happened a few years before that and, and that got leaked. And Mark Cuban responded back immediately um, saying he thought it was very interesting. He knew everything about the technology, which was very rare. Like none of the investors we met at this point in time had any idea what generative AI was, was about. Um, and then we had a 12-hour conversation only on email with Mark Cuban. Like he would ask us questions, we'd respond back to him. And he ended up saying that he'd do a million dollars if the due diligence checked out. Um, and that is actually how we got started. And I think the, my lesson there was Mark Cuban already had the same thesis we had. We didn't have to convince him that this was going to happen. We didn't have to convince him that it was going to be a great business. He was definitely just evaluating our ideas and the founding team. And uh, I don't know, maybe he didn't went deep enough to, to figure out that maybe we weren't on paper the right ones to do it, or he just thought we had the right answers, right? But I think the lesson for us there was definitely, um, it's much easier to work with people who, um, who already share your thesis, and are more looking to evaluate kind of how you're gonna get from A to B and, and the founding team, right? Whereas at that point in time, we, we were starting at like generative AI is this thing, and. But we, it wasn't really generative AI at the time. Like the, the, the term was pinned more recently. In 2017, it was just, you know, machine learning. I mean, that's how it was. You know, there was a bit of AI and machine learning. But like, what, what did you, 
like when you started uh, this, I mean, did you add the sense that, you know, how fast the technology would mm. would evolve and and kind of how fast would you achieve the milestone that you have achieved in terms of the technology and the realism of the, the video that you're producing today? Well, so we actually did call it Generative AI back in 2018. I actually, last week, found a bunch of my old presentations that I used to run around with at talks, AI talks here in London. And we decided to call it synthetic media, which turned out to have been maybe a mistake because now Generative AI is the term that was around. But, but actually, I think a lot of the, 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 the technology in a very early stage was there back then. And I think the way we think about generative AI today actually was how a lot of people thought about it, including us back then. Um, of course, we couldn't predict exactly how all this would pan out. But you look at our seed deck, which I actually was what, what I found a couple of weeks ago. We predicted that text to video, kind of like what we have today in our product, would be around 2023. Um, and that full kind of Hollywood style filmmaking only with AI was going to be around 2028. So I think we probably were maybe a bit too pessimistic, actually. We ended up having text-to-video avatars in 2020, and I think, I think by 2025 or 2026, I think we'll see a movie that has been made 80 90% by AI and 10% by, by filming things with a camera. Um, so I think we had the vision and the timelines you know, somewhat right, at least. The thing that we had to learn, and which was a very rough path, was mm. how do we go from, okay, we think this is going to happen in the world, how do we sequence a business to get to that really big opportunity down the line, right? And so was it obvious to you from, uh, from the beginning that, you know, video would be a much, much better mean of communication uh, and, uh, and learning than text, and that the first use case would be, well, let's turn text into video because then the content which we have you know is absorbed much better yeah. by the, the people um, you know looking at it well, is it something that was really you know, a core part of the foundation uh, of the, the company when you started or is that something that you kind of discovered as the technology was evolving it was definitely something we discovered as we evolved I think um, we obviously knew that video was most people preferred to watch video when we kind of started the company, right? But our initial product that we took to market, which is the first more or less three years of the company, was all around working with existing video production professionals. So we were selling this AI dubbing solution where you could go in and give us uh, advertisement, for example, and then we would take that advertisement, produce it in 10 different languages by changing the voice track, but then also reanimating the face so it looked like it was recorded originally in French or Italian, right? And what we found during that period where we both were doing that, but also just talking to as many people as we could to build our kind of a first principles understanding of what video is and why people make video and what takes people with video. The really big learning that we made was that what we thought of as video at the time was what most people think of as video, right? If everyone who's listening to this right now close their eyes and think of video content, you'll see like a cool series you saw on Netflix, You'll see a great produced video, YouTube video or a nice advertisement on TV or something like that, right? But this is actually 0.0000001% of the video content that gets produced, right? This is the absolute best video content that gets mm -hmm. produced. And there's a whole different genre of video, which is the 99% of video content, right? That's a lot of the stuff, videos that have like 17 views on YouTube. Um, and what we learned was that these people who were doing the 99% of video content who doesn't have a lot of budget, 
Stuttgart early people who are great at storytelling. This group of people, their house was really on fire because they all really wanted to make video, but it's so hard for them. They didn't have the budget to do it. They don't know where to start. Um, and it's just really hard to do. And so what we learned during this process of selling to these actual video production professionals was that actually the much more interesting market is these billions of people who will be very, very happy with a video that is slightly lower quality than what you would shoot with a camera if it's a thousand times easier and a thousand times more affordable to make that video. Um, and that's, that, that's how we kind of got to, to the insight that led us to the, the product which we're known for today, which is Synthesia Studio, which is like a web app, right? Go in, pay $30, you can just start making videos immediately. And the learning there was that for these people, right? And a lot of this content is not what people think, again, of as like amazing content. It's very functional video. And the reason people do very functional video is because information retention is way, way, way higher than it would be with text. And that's what led this sort of our mental model to shift from being like building technology to make it easier to make video as like most people think of video. to like, can we take the world's text and turn it into video? That'll have like a huge uh, benefit for, for all these people that we work with. Yeah, so that, that amazing technology. I mean, maybe in a few years from now, we'll be able to do this podcast using Synthesia technology. <laughs> uh, but tell us a bit more about, uh, you know, the, the science behind Synthesia. I think well, one thing which is quite particular about Journey VI company is that they do have a research department. Like if you look at mm -hmm. most startup, they have an engineering department, they have a product department. Yeah. Uh, and so you're managing engineer, you're managing product manager, uh, but now with, you know, when you have an AI company like this, now suddenly you have research, engineering, and product, which adds a lot of complexity, of course, in the management, but also, you know, working with researcher is not the same as working with engineers and, uh, and, and product managers as well. So tell us a bit more about how you thought about this from, you know, from the start, how much of the science and the research you want to have internally versus relying on you know, other, you know, proprietary or open source uh, models? I think for us, we try to be very, very, very intentional about like what kind of models do we want to be the best in the world at? And then focusing only on those and then using off the shelf, open source, third party providers for the rest. For that, for us, that's all about digital humans and digital voices. It's not just a new technology, right? It's a new type of company. I think in the same way that if you go back to like tech companies, or IT companies in the 90s, who generally sold uh, software that would arrive on like a CD-ROM or it's like on-prem to like a big corporate, a big enterprise. If you just look at the org structure of those kind of companies, they look very, very different than from what a SaaS company does, right? You need different types of functions. You need um, different like ways of operating. It's just two different types of companies, even though both of them sell software, right? And I think AI is like the next natural evolution of that. And one of the big things, as you mentioned, right, is that the R&D department all of a sudden is not just like a satellite team who is sitting somewhere and you're just hoping for them to like build some cool technology that, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll implement the product. Everything centers around the technology we're building in the AI team. And that means that for us, we have a big R&D team, right, who does everything to do with all the AI models. And we have a product engineering team who's building the product that sits around it, so like everything, like the more traditional kind of SaaS stuff. And um, these are just two very different teams. They, they think very differently, right? I think it's really important as a founder to really deeply understand like both of those 
for most founders, I think the natural thing would be to understand SaaS. If you come from a, a, a SaaS, we've been in the technology sector for the last, like whatever, 10, 20 years. But like research teams is different, right? They work on, it's very hard to, to, to set timelines for a research team, right? Because they're doing science and sometimes science can take, and especially with, with building neural networks, right? Maybe you just stumble upon, you know, the right neural network the first time and the problem is solved in two weeks. It rarely happens, but technically that, that could be possible, right? And on the other hand, it can also be like, you know, we think it might take six months, but maybe it'll take nine, maybe it'll take 12. It's very hard to plan ahead because you're, you're doing science. The people who work in R&D also care about different things than engineers. Engineers who work in SaaS companies generally are more kind of like, you know, uh, move fast, break things, ship things, always deploy. Like it's, it's, it's a whole kind of culture around how you do engineering in like a startup, right? Whereas in the world of, of, of research, a lot of people are more motivated by writing research papers, for example, citations. Is kind so of that, that's a good point so on the research paper. So, of, I mean, as you say, researchers, they want to publish at some point. Yeah. But if what you're doing is proprietary on this algorithm, mm -hmm. you probably don't want them to publish. So how do you manage that? Yeah. And how do you, so do you allow your uh, researcher to publish? If so, you know, how do you constrain their publishing if you do? And uh, how do you balance that with kind of building a moat uh, and preventing your competitor to have access to the technology that you're building? Yeah. So we have done uh, two research papers. Um, I think it is really difficult. There's a couple of things to take into account. There's one which is um, if you want to hire the best researchers in the world, this is something that's important to them, right? Uh, I think for some people, almost more important than the compensation part, actually, right? Because a lot of people who become scientists and academics do it because they want to be a part of the scientific community, they want to build on top of what other people have done, and thus this you know, idea of being open around your research is, is really important. So to attract a lot of those people, you kind of need to have an element of this mm. in it. Um, then there's the other side of this, which is, you know, if you actually are very open on it, you can also have the community help better your models, help better the things that you're doing. Of course, this comes at the risk of that being out in the open, so your competitors might also be able to do it. Um, and then there is, uh, which is a much more kind of soft thing, but uh, I think a lot of founders, and I think myself also think it's generally good to contribute to the scientific community, right? For us, I think we, we, we do it, but we're not going to publish everything that we do. I think we are seeing a shift in AI companies the last 12 to 18 months where people are closing more and more off, unless you're specifically an open source uh, company, right? And, um, and I think... I think for, for a company like us, it's, it's much more kind of applied. It's going to be more about building products than, than, uh, than doing research papers as we, uh, as we, as we progress. But, but, but still hope we can, we can share some of the learnings that we make. And I think it also helps build the profile of the company, helps you attract the best people and so on. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. And so we talked about the video, but there is also the voice mm -hmm. angle, right? So you're, so are, are you, um, do you see this as two separate field of research or do you think that actually the, the combination of video and voice at the same time, that is very powerful. So like, how, how do you think about that from a research and algorithm standpoint? If, if you go back to before this like large model LLM foundational model uh, platform shift that we've seen the last like what are two years mm -hmm. like that right, then a lot of you know what was then called generative AI was like these like very narrow problems that you could solve with, with algorithms like 
for example, draw me an image of a face, right? Or yeah. understand how exactly my mouth moves when I talk. We can use that as a component of a bigger yeah. system. Um, now what we are seeing with these bigger and bigger models, right, is that increasingly it can be more, instead of having to solve like all the individual parts one by one, we can actually build these systems that are more kind of general by, na by nature. If you just feed them enough data, it, it sort of works. So the way we look at this is that even though they are separate technologies, ultimately what we are trying to do is to enable our users to make a really awesome video that feels lifelike, where you have control over it. And that is a combination of both the video, the voice, the script writing, a bunch of other things. So we think that these models increasingly is going to be joined together. Um, they might still have some element of separation to them, but increasingly all these things will kind of have to play together and be multimodal by nature to produce the outcomes that you really want to see, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's something, you know, everyone is seeing, like OpenAI just launched their multimodal GPT-4, with test ability to speak to you, it can understand what you're saying to it, it can understand images, and it just feels very natural that all these things ultimately will kind of move more towards being some sort of intelligence that you can use to create content more than it's a specific technology for making text or voice or image or whatever, right? Hmm. And, and so all, all these, um, these algorithms that you're building, I mean, a lot of the success of the technology is based on the data that you use to train these algorithms. And, and one of the things in particular that you've built is like this super nice studio in East London yeah. with 100 cameras. So tell, tell us a bit more about like, where did the idea come from for the studio and why was it so important for, for your research? If you look at where the technology is today and where it needs to go, right, we all feel like we're maybe 5% into the roadmap. Like there's so much to do before you can still, you can, you can make like, you know, a full rich scene with avatars interacting with each other, talking to each other, picking up objects, sitting in chairs, like kind of like what we're doing right now, right? Yeah. Um, and the first iteration of these technologies, as impressive as they are, are kind of fairly dumb. What most companies today do, we've kind of moved past that, but most of the companies in this space do, they take a video, and then they loop it in a smart way, and then they just change the, the lip movements, right? But it's kind of a hackish way of actually doing it. And we believe that to really get this to a point where you can create much more rich and inter interesting scenes, um, we need to move into a world where there's some level of 3D understanding um, and some kind of control structure that can guide how these networks synthesize like video scenes. And to do this, you need to build models that have a really solid kind of world understanding. You want to have models that really understands in detail how a human speaks, how they move, how they articulate. Um, and we think that just getting this from 2D data, as in like a normal video, is not going to be enough. These models in a really, really deep understanding of, of, of the human as a species almost, right? And so the way we're approaching this is that we think that these large models are really awesome, and they have already made a huge difference. But to really make them work incredibly well, we need um, less volumes of data, but really, really high quality data. And so one of the things we have done is we've built a studio in, in, in London, where we capture people in almost like a Hollywood visual effects type of setup, right? Where we have lots of different angles, lots of different lights. And that's gonna help us build this data set, which is gonna eventually turn into this kind of foundational model for how humans uh, look, move, and speak. Um, so that's, that, that's a big part of how we see the next, not just like marginal improvement in making the avatars, you know, a little bit more emotive and expressive, but the true platform shift in being able to, to create these videos in a controlled manner where you can do 
much more interesting things. I think what you're saying is a very important point that the avatars that you're producing are not existing video where you just change the leap movement to yeah. make the you know a video say something else. Like you're fully generating the the full video, which is yeah. uh, the the full persona, which is um, I think a very uh, very important and, and, and distinction. That's, yeah. And that's something that's going to be in the product, like hopefully by the end of 2024. And even that is going to be a big big sort of shift um, because we're going to take the avatar from. I mean, today they're great, but you can generally tell that they're like an avatar, right? They have a little bit of like robotics into it. And that has turned out to be very good for a bunch of use cases. But well, I think what we'll be able to do... People who have seen my avatar say, you know, it looks real, but pre-media training. I think it's a good, <laughs> uh, it's a good way to say where the, yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the V3 is, but, you know, the V4 is coming. The V4 is coming and the V4 is going to be, it's going to be a huge step up in terms of the realism. And I think that think we with this update we might be able to push through the uncanny valley and be able to actually generate these sort of still you know um speaking to the camera type of videos where the avatars can have emotions they'll be if you give them a sad script they'll kind of be sad and they'll say it in a sad way if you give them you know a sales script they'll be much more excited they'll perform that much more like an actual actor would whereas today it is still stuck a little bit in this uh you know slightly more um contain the like robotic type of performance right so that's that's the next like short term that's going to make a huge difference i think and then you know this idea of moving into real kind of worlds and scenes that's probably going to be something that's going to be more by by next year nice and where do you think we are in the the escrow right one thing which was you know very impressive is like when i look at the version of avatar you were doing 18 months ago versus you know what you released like six months ago there was like a yeah. huge uh, huge difference. And when I start looking at some of the video of the V4 that's going to come out, uh, hopefully um, in the coming months, then there, there is another like step function in, in improvement. Like, where do you think we are in the S curve today? Like, do you think that that's very steep acceleration that we're seeing is going to continue for another two, three, four, five years? Or like, when do you think at some point the, you know, it's going to be more incremental in terms of performance? The last big platform change really was LLMs. Right? And the idea of like these very, very, very large models um, that are able to perform uh, almost like yeah. super, with almost superhuman uh, kind of capabilities, right? And I think there's still a lot to go on there. Um, I think if you take something like image generation, I think we're starting to see where this technology kind of like caps out to some extent. So you take a company like Midjourney, like absolutely fantastic company, really pushing the, the boundaries in terms of what you can do with image generation. And if you look at where that was, like even just 12 months ago to where it is today, it's now much more controllable, it's super high quality, you can operate, you can do a lot of things with it. It's a lot of fundamental things. It's still really hard to edit these videos. It's still essentially kind of like a stochastic machine, right? You give it a prompt and you hope that the right output is gonna, gonna be there. It's not, you're not able to edit it like in a very granular way. I think that's still what these models struggle with. It's a bit the same, like we can't, we don't really know how to make uh, like text-driven LLMs not hallucinate, for example. And for video, I think we're still a bit earlier here. Like you are seeing some companies doing cool things with large video models. But I think that the, the ceiling for, for this generation of technology will be that you probably can produce fairly realistic looking video. Um, but it'll be very difficult to control it. It'll be very difficult to make it consistent. And that means it'll be great for creatives who are okay with prompting 50 times to get something that kind of works and do some you know, fun editing around it. Um, 
but it won't be a system that's super reliable, super controllable, and will enable someone with a vision in their mind to turn that one-to-one into reality. So I think that's where large models are going to kind of cap out. But having been in this space for almost seven years, every you know, one and a half years, two years, we do get one of these big step changes. Now the big question is how do you actually make it controllable and reliable? Um, and, and I'm sure we'll see platform shift there. I don't know if it's going to be, I kind of hope it's not going to be on the, <laughs> the scale of like what LLMs uh, have done to, to the space, but um, I'm, I'm sure we're going to see some really interesting stuff. Yeah, no, it's a general thing, actually, which is interesting of running an AI company for a long period of time, is that you constantly have to balance um, exploitation versus exploration, right? Hmm. So exploitation being, okay, we have these technologies. How do we make them like incrementally better with what we saw in Node to be true? Those are the, the, it's, it's less risky, right? And it's more like engineering these models, fine-tuning them, uh, all AGF, like all the stuff that people are doing to make them better. But they'll still be constrained by the overall model to some extent, right? So that's that's that one thing. That's where you can provide most of the time. You can build features, you can build a product that's like you know marginally better month by month for your customers. And then there's the other part of this, right, which is the exploration, which is kind of like okay, what do we think is going to be the next actual really big step change that's going to make all these small incremental improvements that we've spent a year on doing just make them disappear, right? And it's really dangerous, it's really hard to navigate because if you get the step, if you get, I think if you get two platform changes wrong, you're basically dead. Um, but if you have a product that stands still for too long because you're, not do, you're only doing the science part and the exploration, then, um, then you, know, you might end up with unhappy customers. So finding the balance between those two is, is really, really difficult. And I see if you look at the history of AI startups over the last six or seven years, a lot of them have died because they they missed these platform changes, right? And someone else came up with a product made by four people in a basement that's just like significantly better than whatever came before it. But if you get them right, the potential is massive, right? Which is... So my current thesis right. is, if you get three platform changes in a row right, I think you get like escape velocity, more or less. It's going to be very, very difficult to compete with, uh, with companies that have gotten it right like three times. In terms of the go-to-market, it was very much looking at those users, starting off, of course, talking to them, driving them into our funnel. We didn't follow the usual playbook of, we're great, we're targeting the enterprise, know these people have a big problem, let's do enterprise marketing. What we figured out was that we're an early stage startup, we don't have that much resource, and we have a product that has this like viral, wow factor, jaw-dropping kind of element to it. How do we harness that to build a great GTM engine? And what we figured out was um, the best way to drive enterprise leads was not by cold calling people, um, because when you do that, right, you have to stop. What's an AI video? Why would I do this? This is a deep fake. Not sure my boss would like this. No, I don't want to talk to you anymore. What we did instead was we figured out that if we can just get enough eyeballs, enough kind of top funnel, um, then among all these people, some of them will just naturally know that they have this problem. They'll want to talk to us. So what we did is what we went hard on TikTok of just getting people to get to Synthesia and make a free demo video. Once people made a free demo video, we know that on average they would share this with three other people. And a lot of those videos were just people, you know, making a funny video for their mom or their partner or their friend or something like that. Not because it was like a business video, but all those people who did that, they also have real jobs, right? And that's how we landed a lot of like Fortune 100 companies, either because they saw us on TikTok themselves, some of them like their kids would make an AI video that because they saw us on TikTok, they would share it with like their family. And so we built this, you know, on the front end, very consumerized sort of marketing engine, but that ultimately uh, helped us get into the enterprise. 
Yeah, it was very interesting to see. I mean, you have customers paying, as you said, $30 uh, a month. And then you have, on the other end, customers paying six-figure deals or high six-figure deals per year, right? So that huge difference. So how do you manage to get the kind of the two bottom-up and kind of top-down sales motion coexisting and, and be synergistic? I think it is, especially as you get to like a certain uh, scale, it does it does become more difficult to make those two motions work really well. But I think for us, we know that the fundamentally best way to sell Synthesia, no matter who we're selling it to, is to get it in front of people. Have them make a video themselves. Um, that could be just, as I said before, a video that, that is like more kind of for fun or just to try out the product. Instead of focusing on like huge upfront sales, and long sales cycles, it's much more about like, just get the product in front of, 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 of the potential customer and then show value to them. And then from there, they'll upgrade, right? So, I mean, we've talked about the, the technology. We've talked about the, the go-to-market. So now, just wrapping this all together, like if you had uh, like three pieces of advice for an entrepreneur starting an AI company, what would they be? I think one thing that's always good is like, look where the spotlight isn't yet. Like now everybody's talking about AI. Every, it's a hot space. Everybody wants to invest in AI. And there's still lots of great companies to be started. Um, but I think if you're like starting to start a foundational model company number 125, you know, maybe that train has already left the platform and maybe you need to look at other things that, that are interesting. Right now in AI, I'm very interested in companies that just use AI on the back end to fulfill some other business need much faster. For example, spoken, speaking to a company who figured out a way to make uh, manga animes, like the, you know, like a kind of cartoons. Um, and what they figured out was that this is like, this is an industry that's dominated by very few companies in Japan because it's a super specific skill to actually be able to draw this kind of manga, right? Yeah. Um, and it's a massive business, like Naruto, which is the biggest business in manga, I think, does like $12 billion of revenue every single year. What they figured out was that if we can train an AI system to just help us make these drawings and tell the stories, still, you know, human storytellers, but just on the back end, actually making the images that makes up this cartoon, that could be pretty huge. And they did that. And they've now launched, I think, three or four different types of, of new IP. And one of them is, is going really, really well. I think it's a great example of like, you don't have to tell anyone you're an AI company, right? They're just taking the technology and exploiting it to do something you couldn't do before. Um, so that'd be my one thing. And then, then I think my second thing would be if you're building an AI product, um, the kind of first thought idea is rarely the good ones to go for. So like when ChatGPT came out, right, everyone was like, let's build, uh, I'm going to build a company that does a customer service via an LLM, for example. It's like the most obvious idea for most business people as soon as they try ChatGPT, right? What if you could just chat with a customer support agent like this? And it is probably a good, it is a good idea. Like there's just a bunch of incumbents who already have the entire platform that sits around delivering customer service mm -hmm. via like a chat interface. And they're going to do this as well, right? Especially with this type of technology that's really easy to work with. And um, so try and look for areas that is much less obvious. And I often think a good way of thinking of this is like, what would be really hard for an incumbent to just build as a feature in like three or six months? And that often is very much around building products that weren't really possible to do before, right? A loom, for example, the tool that a human yeah. being can use to like cut down things. The human being could have cut down things without a loom also. The loom just makes it faster and much easier to do, right? Whereas something like a crane is like a fundamentally new thing, right? No one human could ever lift a concrete 
pillar um, and, and build the skyscraper by itself, right? That, that provides fundamentally like something new that a human can do. I think it's a bit, I think that's a good framework for thinking about AI products. It needs to be kind of built AI first, not just an existing problem with a little bit of AI and so. Good. So, I mean, now we're, we're at a point where, you know, the, or nearly at a point where the technology um, is going to be so realistic that you won't be able to tell the difference between uh, a synthetic video and, and a real uh, video. So what are the implications in your minds in terms of regulation? I mean, the, there's been a lot of efforts uh, in the US, but also, you know, in the EU with kind of the AI Act that is being uh, worked right now. Uh, where do you think um, regulation should go? Um, well, I think first and foremost, I think the reason you want to have regulations is because these technologies um, can definitely create harm, right? I think there's, there's no doubt about that. That's something that's always been incredibly important to us. We found the company on an ethical framework around consent, control, and collaboration. And we do a lot of work to make sure that our technology isn't misused. Um, we want to create the right environment where we can still harness all the benefits of all these technologies, but also reduce the harms, right? And I'm not a legislator, so I, I don't think I have the exact framework down, but I think there's a few concepts that I think is good to follow. I think the first one is that I think it's very difficult to be prescriptive in the regulation, right? Like, so being very granular and very detailed on it, because this is a space that's evolving so quickly. We've already seen in the EU AI Act, for example, how they spent many years in putting together the first draft of the AI Act, and basically right before they were about to kind of put it into action, the generative AI moment happened, right? And then a lot of those very prescriptive, which almost went down to describing like these types of algorithms should be regulated in these different types of ways, all of a sudden they wouldn't really cover um, a lot of stuff around generative AI. So I think a smart approach is to take a little bit on the back foot to being very prescriptive. Um, I think that's actually something the UK is, is doing pretty well, but that doesn't mean of course that you shouldn't do anything. I think there should be a general responsibility for companies to ensure that the technology isn't used for harm. And I think, again, being very prescriptive around that is very difficult because every company is very different and nobody knows how the space is going to play out. But I think, um, I think governments should, should, should take the approach of putting responsibility to companies to make sure that, AI, that the technology is safe. So that's one question, I think, around regulation. This will be a lot around some of the things people are, are discussing right now, of course, is things like bias. It's things like um, how much should you kind of lobotomize these models that can output very general things and to not put output harmful things. The other side of the discussion, which I think is very interesting, is around like trading data and copyright, which has been a hot topic. Uh, there's a lot of litigation going on in the US right now. And here there's sort of two camps. So there is uh, some of the AI companies who train like very large models, especially around like text, for example, um, who have scraped a lot of data on the internet that they don't necessarily have permission to and manage to build these absolutely incredible systems, right? Uh, and then you have, on the other hand, rights holders who feel like their content has been kind of stolen. It's been used to train these AI uh, algorithms and these AI models. So you have these two camps for people. And then the question is, do you regulate what you can train the models on, so the input to the models. So this would be, for example, saying you're not allowed to train on any copyrighted materials. You can only train models on content that you have explicit permission to use. Or you can say, should you, should, you should regulate the output of the models, right? Which would be to say, if your model can spit out 
copyrighted content, like a Mickey Mouse cartoon, for example, then we should regulate that these models cannot spit that out. But it's okay that it's trained on Mickey Mouse cartoons, right? We've all read a lot of books, uh, you know, when you were at school and university. Um, but does it mean that every, everything we're doing today, which of course, I mean, to some extent refers to all the learning we had exactly. in, in kind of these fundamental years, like to what extent are we using copyrighted material in the whatever we do every day, right? I think this is the same, same thing for AI, which, you know, you can train your model on a lot of books, but the question is like, how do you control the output so that it, it is building on content, but not plagiarism, right? Exactly. And I think that like drawing that line is going to be really interesting. Uh, and that's a really hard question. I can kind of understand both sides of, of, of the discussion, right? But I think as you said, like if the two of us, we, we sit down, we listen to uh, 500 songs from a, a particular band or whatever, right? And then we write our own song, which is definitely inspired by our listening session of those 500 hours. Is that then an infringement? Or like how much residue of the original content that need, mm. does there need to be, right? And I think to something that that's already happening a lot today, you have lots of litigation around, you know, in music, for example, you'll have, uh, you know, a new pop hit comes out, becomes really popular. And then you'll have, some would call them trolls, who literally just sit and look through old catalogs of music and say, you know, that exact chord progression, uh, I did that in 1987, I'm going to sue you because you stole my work and you're going to pay me 5% of all the royalties, right? And this also happens, of course, with visual content and many other things. So it's going to be really interesting to see like, where, where all that uh, lands up. Yeah, I think we'll need, uh, we'll need some regulation, but as you say, it needs to be done in a smart way, in a way that uh, I think that your point you're making about evolving technology and the legislation being able to evolve and adapt to the evolution of technology, I think is, uh, is a super important one. Good. So if we leave the, the world of, uh, of video for a moment and just focus on AI more broadly, like what are the things that, are ex that excites you most about AI today? It's sort of like we've taught these models and they have some kind of world understanding, right? Which translates into being able to produce hmm. almost any image you can sort of technically think of just by this like natural language prompt interface. Like it's just incredible what these models can spit out in any modality, right? And so we've seen kind of like a glimpse of how capable these models are going to be. The thing I'm really excited about is the next generation I think will be about putting much more control structures into these models so that we can get them to do what we actually really want them to do and be kind of less a random machine that you, you know, you, you kind of try and notch it like a bit to the left, a bit to the right, and then it misses the center of it. Because right now they are just by, by nature, right? they're very general, they're kind of pretty random in the output. And I think the next generation of technology will be that we get much more granular control over what they output. And I think that's going to enable a whole new set of business use cases. Uh, I think from the tech side of things, I think this will mean we can hopefully get rid of most hallucinations. If we can get rid of hallucinations, I think no one will disagree that the potential for LLMs is... Is, I mean, it's just amazing in the enterprise, right? But it, it still has that roadblock to kind of go over. And if you think of something like image or video there at the rear end, it'll mean that you, I think, can get to a point where you can use these tools to get what's actually in your mind out on the screen, as opposed to you feeding kind of an idea. The AI takes it, interprets it, and puts out something that's kind of random, but in that same direction. Um, and I think that's going to be 
that's going to be really amazing once we get those control structures in place. Well, th thank you very much, Victor. It was uh, great to have you with us uh, today and uh, good luck to Synthesia. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. On the next episode of Spotlight on AI, Steve Laughlin, a partner at Excel, sits down with Kai Gogwilt, the co-founder and chief architect at Ironclad. We had this thesis that AI was going to go through a moment in like the next three to five years or something, and that by building the foundation for legal, we would be perfectly positioned in three to five years-ish to take advantage and innovate the practice of law with this new revolution in AI.